Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. The old preacher, J. Vernon McGee, told the following story. He said this, he said, quote, Many years ago, I was speaking at a conference to about three or four hundred young people in Southern California. And I was out on the grounds on the camp, and coming toward me was a group of girls. And in the middle of them, there was one boy. It looked like the girls were going to rip him apart, going to take him apart. And they were making a lot of noise. They were making a great big deal about it. Finally, they came up to me, and the girls wanted me to hear what this fellow had to say. He said to me, Dr. McGee, did you know that there's not going to be any women in heaven? And I said, no, I didn't know that. Do you have a scripture for it? And he said, yes, the Bible says that there's going to be silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. Not me saying this. This young man. And he said, if there are any women there, they couldn't be that much silence for that long. Well, no wonder these young girls wanted to rip him apart, right? He deserved it. But he was right about one thing. We'll give him that. He was right about one thing. We do begin in Revelation 8 with a silence in heaven. And no, just for the record, it is not because there's no preachers in heaven either. That's not the reason. I believe it is the calm, the calm before the storm. Look at where we begin with our text this morning with verse 1 of Revelation 8. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, the apostle John had witnessed Christ opening the first six seals of the scroll. Chapter 7 showed us that John had caught a backstage glimpse, if you will, of the Hebrews and Gentiles that would come to faith during the tribulation. The next act of judgment is about to begin with the opening of the seventh seal, but there is silence in heaven. It is the chilling silence in heaven that comes before the judgment. The 144,000 Hebrew witnesses have been sealed. God's judgment is about to pound down upon this earth. Even the praise and worship of God in heaven is interrupted. And there is a pause before the great storm of God's wrath. Those assembled around the throne waited to see what God would do next. The seventh seal is the final seal, but it's not the end of God's judgment. Not at all. It is actually the most important seal in all of seven of them because it includes all the content from chapter 8 of Revelation all the way to through chapter 19, verse 10. The opening of the seventh seal will usher in seven more judgments called trumpet judgments. And each of them are introduced with a trumpet. You can kind of see where we're going there with the whole idea of a trumpet judgment. They're introduced with a trumpet. And they take place in the second half of the tribulation. Now the trumpet judgments will bring massive destruction and massive death on earth, which is why, which is why there is silence in heaven. 
It's a bit like the hush in a courtroom right before the sentence is handed out. You know that something big is about to happen. So verse 2 tells us this. It says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. John saw someone give seven trumpets to a group of seven angels standing before the throne. Now, it's not clear to us who these angels are other than seven angels appointed by God to direct the judgments revealed with the seven trumpets. These seven trumpets are different than the trumpet of God sounded in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 at the rapture of the church. Don't think of a trumpet here as a musical instrument. Don't think so much of that. Think of something more like a bugle on a battlefield. That's more the image I want you to have in your head. Trumpets, you remember, for Israel had a lot of functions. They would sound the trumpets to gather the people together for a lot of different reasons. But here they are used to announce the judgment that has come as part of the day of the Lord. Because when used by God, trumpets in the Bible, trumpets in the Bible show that God is about to do something significant. God is about to show his power over the earth. But before the angels sounded their trumpets announcing the judgment of God, something quite remarkable takes place. And it starts in verse 3, where the Bible tells us this. It says, Then another angel, having a gold censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was set before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God. From the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Now, before the angels play their trumpets of judgment, an angel approached the altar in heaven holding a golden censer. Now, this is one of these texts where we're going to have to go a little deeper, so stick with me on this. The prayers of God's people drift up to God's throne like a fragrant incense. Remember that the temple on earth, the temple on earth in Israel was patterned after the temple in heaven. Remember that key detail. And in the tabernacle, they used a censer, much like that, made of copper. In the temple of Solomon, the censers were made of gold. These bowls were used in temple worship. This angel stood with his golden censer before the altar in heaven. His golden censer contained fires of coals, coals of fire. Notice the teaching here in verse 3. Watch it with me. It says, This angel was given more incense to add to the prayers of the saints that were already there. Do you remember back in chapter 6, when we were studying this together, back in chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 10, the text said this about the tribulation saints. It said, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, I want you to remember with me that our vision in chapter 8 is taking place in the tribulation and the prayers of God's people will be crying out for justice. Here, in our text, the prayers of the saints are being added. God's people crying out for His justice on earth. These prayers are being added. 
These are God's people crying out for God to return for a specific reason, for God to return to earth to establish his kingdom. It is the prayer we learn in the Gospels. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. See, the altar described in heaven is the golden incense altar. This angel offered up this incense on the coals on this altar. And here is what this altar looked like in the Old Testament. Now, the smoke went up before God with the prayers of the saints and ascended before God from the angel's hand. Very fitting when you consider that incense was to be offered every morning and every evening in the Old Testament worship. Exodus 30 teaches us this. It says, Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Now, this is something that would happen every single day. The censer was used to carry coals to the altar of incense. Then the incense would be poured on the coals. It would just kind of be poured on the coals and the smoke represented prayer ascending up to God. Now I want you to track this with me, okay? Because we're building to a teaching here. This is the picture here given to us in heaven. The incense was offered on the coals before God. And then taking the censer with the fire still in it, the angel threw it down to the earth which resulted in noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. The prayers of God's people drift up to God. They drift up to God like a fragrant incense. You see, when we pray, hear this, when we pray, it creates a pleasing aroma to God. So keep on praying, Christians, because God wants to hear from his people. Now, there's more that we need to discover here, so keep following with me on this. This is teaching us that the impending judgments that are about to follow, they arise from God's holy justice. And they are sent in response to the prayers of God's people throughout all the ages who have prayed for judgment and justice to come to the earth. In other words, God hears our prayers and he prepares to act on behalf of his people. God has not forgotten our prayers. And this is teaching us that when we pray, not only is the answer sometimes yes and sometimes no or sometimes wait, but in this case, think of what it's telling us. God was storing up these unanswered prayers until he chose to answer them in his sovereign, perfect timing. Do you see it? The thunderings, the lightnings, and the earthquake are a forewarning of God's judgment. You know, sometimes when we think of prayer, we're a bit like the young man who went to a local drugstore to buy three boxes of chocolate. He bought a small box, a medium box, and a large box. And when the owner of the store asked him about the three boxes, he said, Well, I'm going over to my new girlfriend's house for supper, and then we're going to go out for the evening. If she only lets me hold her hand... I'll give her the small box of chocolate. If she lets me kiss her on the cheek, she's going to get a medium box of chocolate. But if she really lets me smooch, 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 then I'm going to give her the large box. 
So he made his purchase, and that evening he sat down for dinner with his girlfriend's family, and he asked if he could say the prayer before the evening meal. And he began to pray. I mean, this kid prayed. He prayed and prayed, and he prayed with some very, very intense fellowship with God that lasted for almost five minutes. And when he finished, his girlfriend said, well, you never told me you were such a person of faith. And he just said, you never told me that your dad owned a drugstore. This is not the type of prayers we're talking about here in Revelation, okay? Focus on the prayers. Look at the content. Look at the content of the book of Revelation. The purpose of prayer in Revelation is not to get man's will done on earth. It is to get God's will done on earth. Do you hear it? It is not to get man's will done even in heaven. It is to get God's will done on earth. God's will done on earth. That's the focus of these prayers. In other words, what we have in this text is an explanation of what has happened to all the prayers throughout all the ages where the saints of God have cried out again and again and again for thousands of years, thy kingdom come. See, these prayers of faith have not been ignored. They're not lost. They're not forgotten. They're not ignored. They have a purpose before God. They've been gathering on the altar before the throne of God, and the flame has been growing brighter and brighter, more pleasing to God in the presence of God. And the time is going to come when God will command his angel to fill the censer with fire from the altar and pour it out on the world to bring God's purpose and plan to completion on this earth. You see, when we pray in faith, when we pray in faith, for the will of God to be done on earth, God takes delight in that type of prayer. And verse 5 is telling us when our prayers are mixed in with the fires of heaven, oh, they have a real purpose here on earth. Beautiful text. God uses our prayers, and we don't always understand how, but God uses our prayers to accomplish his sovereign will on earth. It's a beautiful thing. Here comes the trumpet judgments. Let's pick it up with verse 6. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Now this is the first trumpet judgment that comes out of the seventh seal. This is the second half of the tribulation described by Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 as the great tribulation. Do you remember back in Revelation chapter 7 verse 3 that God allowed this big pause on his judgment long enough for the 144,000 Hebrew servants of God to be sealed for his protection? The angel commanded in Revelation 7, he said this, he said, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have what? Sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The earth, the sea, and the trees could not be affected by judgment until God's servants were sealed. But that short-lived restraint on God's wrath it's going to be removed. And these first four trumpet judgments are coming out of heaven like rapid fire, taking up only six verses. But these trumpet judgments are going to drastically change the living conditions permanently on this planet. They're going to change things until God restores it in his kingdom. They'll be far more devastating than the first six seal judgments. 
far more devastating. The judgment of God is intensifying as we're working our way through the book of Revelation. So verse 7 is teaching us this. The first trumpet judgment will target one-third of the earth's vegetation. Crops and forests will be destroyed. You know, these terrible wildfires that are coming out of the West Coast right now are nothing. They are absolutely nothing compared to the destruction that's going to come when one-third of the trees and grass on earth are consumed and burned. The air is going to fill with smoke and ash. Global food supplies are going to be affected. There's no way they couldn't be. The people will struggle to find food. The loss of life is going to be completely massive on this earth. The picture given in verse 7 is of a horrific hailstorm. That sounds foreign to our thinking, doesn't it? This horrific hailstorm that comes down. But the text is telling us that lightning's going to strike and hail will fall, and it's going to be so intense, it's going to be so bad that there'll be bloodshed as the hail strikes both people and animals. I have to say, it reminds me a bit of the plagues on Egypt because the seventh plague, the seventh plague was a horrendous hailstorm. Exodus 9, it says, And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And it continues and says, And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. God uses hailstones as part of his judgment. He's done this before. Take a look at Joshua 10, 11. In Joshua 10, God took care of the Amorites. It says, And it happened as they fled before Israel, they were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah. And they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. See, it was bad enough back then. It was bad enough in the days of Moses and of Joshua, but it's going to be even worse, much worse when it happens during the tribulation, because one-third of the trees on earth will be burned up, and this is only the first trumpet. There's still six more, six more to sound. So here comes the second one, second trumpet judgment with verse 8. It says, Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. When the second angel sounds his trumpet, John says there'll be something, something like a great mountain burning with fire. Now, there's two ideas that exist about this. This could either be a huge volcanic eruption, like a huge volcanic eruption, or it could be an asteroid coming down and striking the ocean. Remember that in Revelation 6.13, the sixth seal told us, It said, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. A large asteroid falling into the ocean, it would create massive tsunamis, horrible tsunamis, if that's what this is talking about. And it does tell us here that there will be dead fish floating in all the harbors around the world, many dead where the ships at sea are destroyed. 
Now, we had a small taste of this. You guys remember some of this, what it may look like when on December the 26th of 2004, an earthquake off the west coast of Indonesia triggered a series of devastating tsunamis in Southeast Asia. Waves were up to 100 feet tall. And you guys remember how many people that killed? That ended up killing 230,000 souls lost. The furthest recorded death was all the way down in Port Elizabeth in South Africa, 5,000 miles away from the epicenter. The earthquake itself was one of the largest earthquakes ever recorded, measuring between 9.1 and 9.3 on the Richter scale. And it was actually so powerful, it caused the entire planet, and I just think this part is actually kind of cool, it caused the entire planet to vibrate at least half an inch. It's impressive, but it's just a prelude. It's just a prelude to what is coming when the second angel sounds his trumpet during the Great Tribulation. There will be a huge eruption or an asteroid, and it's going to kill a third of the creatures at sea, sink a third of the ships, and turn a third of the sea red with blood of the dead. Again, we remember the plagues in Egypt. We remember those plagues from Exodus 7, where the Nile River was turned into blood, and the text tells us this. It says, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood and the fish that are in the river shall die the river shall stink and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water from the river back in Revelation 8 now the third angel sounds his trumpet and a great star from heaven falls to the earth verses 10 and 11 tell us then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water and the name of the star is wormwood third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. John, he saw this object like a star falling down from heaven. And John said the name of the star is wormwood, which is just a bitter herb. It's a bitter herb, that, a plant that grows in the deserts in the Middle East. It's known for its bitter taste. The name indicates that the waters that once provided fresh nourishment to one-third of the world's population will become bitter, polluted, and deadly. This is the water that men have to drink from, rivers and springs, not the ocean. Think of the major rivers on the earth, rivers like the Amazon River that is over 4,000 miles long, or even the Nile River that's also over 4,000 miles long. Did you know that there are 180 rivers, at least 180 rivers on earth that are greater than 600 miles long? And this blazing star will turn a third of all the drinking water on earth bitter. It'll make it unsafe to drink, killing millions and millions of people around the world. Either this, it's one of two things. Either the people will not know that the water is poisoned or think about the other ramification. It's either that they will not know or that they'll be so desperate because of dehydration, they will drink the water anyways and die. Now this type of meteor falling to the earth is not as far-fetched as people once thought. On uh, July 16th of 1994, something happened in the heavens that is quite amazing. A massive chunk of rock and ice crashed into the planet Jupiter. 
It was clocked at the slow speed of 134,000 miles an hour before it hit. And when it did, the impact produced a large fireball, which you can actually see right there where the arrow is, that was 1,000 miles high. That's the fireball from the impact. 1,000 miles high and 4,000 miles wide. It was the first of more than 20 chunks of the Shoemaker-Levy comet, which hit Jupiter in July of 1994. Fragment G was one of the comet's biggest chunks. It was just one of the biggest ones. It produced a fireball 12 to 1,600 miles high and 5,000 miles wide. Its impact had the force of 6 million tons of TNT, or 100,000 times the power of the largest nuclear bomb ever exploded on the Earth. One astronomer said this, and I think he nailed it. I think he got it perfectly right. He said, it was like God striking the planet. In the fireball itself, astronomers reported seeing some strange chemicals which could have come out of Jupiter's interior or from the comet itself. The comet that hit Jupiter wasn't even discovered until a little more than a year before it hit. See, men like to think that we are the master of our own domains, but then God steps in, God steps in, and he strikes the heavens. You guys remember this? In February of 2013, a meteor streaked through the sky and exploded over Russia's Ural Mountains with the power of 300,000 tons of TNT, essentially the power of an atomic bomb. And just the sonic blast, this is a small one, but just the sonic blast shattered countless windows and injured about a thousand people. It said that it was the largest impact on Earth since 1908. Its size was estimated to be around 50 feet across when it first got into the atmosphere and weighed around 7,000 tons. It only left a crater about 20 feet across. But we've been hit by much bigger, much, much bigger. This is the Barrington Meteor Crater in Arizona, about a mile wide and about 570 feet deep. They estimate that this meteor would have been about 150 feet across and weighing in at about 300,000 tons. But that's not the biggest. That's not even the biggest that's ever hit the Earth. The biggest crater found is the Vredefort Impact Crater in South Africa. Now, if you're wondering what you're looking at there, this is the original crater. It was around somewhere of 190 miles across, and it's so huge and so large, it can only be viewed from space, from satellites. They estimate the meteor itself was between six to nine miles across in diameter. People used to mock, people used to laugh when preachers like myself warned them about the judgments described here in Revelation 8. But the more we learn, see, the more we learn about the universe, the more we learn about what's out there, the more we see how God could easily fulfill this judgment without having to do too much. God will strike the planet just as he said. 
The fourth angel will bring great darkness. Revelation tells us in verses 12 and 13, it says, Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine. And likewise the night, and I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. I want you to think of the damage done to the earth at this time. The vegetation has already been burned. The oceans have already turned to blood. The fresh water has already been poisoned. And now the skies, the skies will darken. The fourth trumpet blast will dim the light of the stars, the moon and the sun by a third. In the Old Testament, again, it gives us this image of the darkening of the heavens before God judges. This even happened at the crucifixion of Christ. Once more, our minds are taken back to the plagues of Egypt, where we read in Exodus 10. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness, which may even be felt. That's dark. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. When death is everywhere, when the power grids go offline, and darkness, that deep darkness, that horrifying darkness that comes upon the land settles in on the earth, the worst nightmares of what we're seeing now in some of our city streets, the anarchy, the chaos, the looting, the rioting, it's going to be global. It will be global. And a third of the day will not shine, possibly meaning that the sun, moon, and stars will not be seen for hours during the day because of the smoke and debris in the atmosphere from the judgments before this. But I tend to think it's more than that. I tend to think the text is telling us something more. I think we're talking about the light itself from both the day and the night. It's reduced because of the disturbances in the heavens. It seems to fit the context better of stars from the heavens falling to the earth. The destruction and the death is listed as so severe that many try to explain away the severity of what Revelation is talking about. But can I remind you of the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, 21, and his words have meaning. He said, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Before any more judgment comes upon the earth, notice what John says. That he heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, what is he saying? The worst is yet to come. The worst is yet to come. The New King James translation here is that this is an angel. But the majority of the manuscripts refer to it as an eagle. Not in the throne room of heaven at this point. John is now referring to the sky above the earth. John saw an eagle fly through the midst of the heavens, the midst of the skies, literally flying in mid-heaven, which is the position of the sun at noon where everyone can see this bird crying out, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the next three judgments will be worse than the first four. The first four trumpet judgments targeted the earth, the habitation of man, but the next three judgments that we're going to see next time will target those living on earth. This bird of prey, this bird of prey that feeds on dead flesh gives us a glimpse ahead that huge numbers will die in the coming days. 
This bird of prey looks ahead and sees what man is unable to. A true story comes out of Ethiopia about a man by the name of Nagasi Tamaru. Life in Ethiopia, I don't think I have to tell anybody here that life in Ethiopia is difficult, hard, struggles to make just ends meet there. And Nagasi made it through life by robbing people. He had a gun, and so he robbed people. That was his thing. Eventually, you do that long enough, and you end up hurting someone, and he did. He killed someone and spent six years in prison. Once he was set free, he went back to his life of crime till the local police finally had enough. And this is, I guess, how they do it in Ethiopia. They took his gun away. But now Nagasi was without hope, without a means to support himself. So he took a job at the local Baptist mission as a guard. I don't know how that works. You rob people, you kill people, and now you're a guard at the Baptist mission. Surprised to say that no one trusted him there. I know that's shocking, but no one trusted him. And the locals told the missionaries that if they hired him, they're going to regret it. They're absolutely going to regret this. Still searching in his own life for an identity that is a life apart from crime. Nagasi decided to do something. He decided to buy a Bible. It cost him more than two days worth of wages. It was also the first book he's ever attempted to read in his entire life. So he did, like some of us have done in the past, when you become at that point in your life where you get your first Bible, and he opened it up, and it just happened to fall to Revelation 21.8, which says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, uh uh-oh, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Close that Bible. Put that Bible away. Not only had Nagasi killed people, but it was worse than that. He was not just a murderer. He'd been involved in sorcery, magic. Well, a few days later, his boss at the mission, an Ethiopian believer, asked him if he wanted to hear something really, really good. And Nagasi, at this point, he was ready for anything. That's when his boss told him about the forgiveness that could be his through Jesus Christ. And so Nagasi said in his own words, I cried and I cried and I cried that day. I couldn't believe that God would forgive me for all the things that I've done. And Nagasi was so deeply touched by the gospel that he went to all of his children to make sure they understood about the forgiveness that comes from Christ. And he had the privilege of leading them to Christ. And he said, quote, now I teach my children the Bible. We pray together every night. And he is now, praise be to God the pastor of a small church in Ethiopia. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? See, that's what changes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what changes. That's how I can stand up here before you today, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God at work in my life. Nagasi, he's no longer scared of revelation. You shouldn't be if you're in Christ. You shouldn't be scared of revelation. Because Nagasi has learned this that he has put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. And he understands that the Lord Jesus took the wrath of God for us on the cross. New life has been given to him. And he understands the truth of 1 Corinthians 6, where the Apostle Paul said this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, I know, nor idolaters, I know. People say that it doesn't talk about homosexuality in the Bible, but here it comes. Nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunk 
drunkards, nor vilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But what do we notice? The very next verse. And such were some of you. How is that written? I hated English class just as much as the rest of you. How is that written? Past tense. Such were some of you. Past tense. But what happened? Christ stepped in, didn't he? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. That's what makes a difference. That's the only thing that can make a difference. The righteousness of Christ in us, our position in Christ made right by faith. See, the difficulties of life and the troubles of this world are only a foretaste of what this world is going to suffer. But I want you to hear me. Just as the 144,000 witnesses in Revelation will use the dark days ahead to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God, so it should be that we use now every single difficult thing in our lives, our difficult trials, to show people Jesus Christ. And so Christians, I want to talk to you for a minute. When was the last time that you prayed for the salvation of another? When was the last time that you shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with another? Can you even be bothered to share the gospel with people? See, when the times in our lives are the darkest, that's when we're to let the light of Christ shine the brightest. And like it or not, you're not going to like this thought, but like it or not, God uses our tragedy in our lives to draw us closer to him because it makes us more thankful, more content, more dependent on him. So when those troubled waters of life come, instead of panic, instead of despair, instead of running from God, run to God and let the God of your salvation guide you, direct you to a deeper walk with him. But Christian, you don't have to wait for the difficult times to come to start walking with Jesus Christ. That's foolish, isn't it? Learn to walk with Christ in the good times and the bad. God has a purpose in everything he allows to happen, even the tribulation. And sometimes it may be tempting to shake our fists towards heaven and doubt the goodness of God during our suffering, but it's never, never wise to question God's motives. So humble your heart. Know that God hears our prayers. Know that God is working out his purpose in your life. And then, and we end with this, remember the words of Psalm 46, where the Lord tells us, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.